0: So, welcome to the Rams Ask a Chair podcast Thank series. You. My name is Hamza Jaz. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Rich Hamilton, who's a department chair at Crozer Health affiliated with Drexel University. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to do this. I did this a few years ago, and the opportunity
1: to do it again uh, was very welcome.
0: Yeah, it's so nice to have a familiar face back here. So thank you so much once again. Of course. Now, just kind of refresh our memories, if this wasn't discussed the first time, but what drew you to the field of emergency medicine? I understand you have been practicing for quite a, you know, quite a while now. What initially interested you and what has continued to interest you since then?
1: Well, I was a medical student and I could tell early on that uh, I had the typical attribute of a medical student interested in emergency medicine in that I liked all the rotations, you know, and began to realize that I liked the uh, high acuity parts of all the rotations delivering babies sewing up lacerations fractures you know complex icu cases cardiology cases that was the first clue that i probably should think about emergency medicine and then fortunately for me i was in medical school on a what they call a health profession scholarship a military uh, health profession scholarship in the navy and became a navy flight surgeon so i had plenty of time to look at emergency medicine while I was doing basically aviation aerospace medicine. In fact, I began to moonlight as an emergency department physician before I even did my residency. So that was my decision wasn't a typical sort of like, I wonder what I want to be. I had the opportunity to really kind of think about it, try it out. And by the time I got to my residency at Jacoby, I was ready to go. It was a specialty for me.
0: Right. And then since obviously now you've been practicing and The specialty has evolved significantly, so what continues to still interest you now that you've been practicing?
1: Well, for me, I think what's fascinating is that if you look back to the 1990s when I was just a few years out of med school and going into residency, we had a lot of the same problems we had now. I mean, we were in the middle of a major crack epidemic, which was spurring all sorts of interpersonal violence. We were in the midst of a very bad AIDS epidemic, which was creating all sorts of pressure on uh, emergency departments for care. And there was an excitement to that because you felt like you made a difference. You know, you felt like you went home at the end of your shift, as bad as it might be, he said you know if i had not been there uh, things would not have gone as well for this person or that person so despite the chaos the madness of a lot of things that were going on there you felt rewarded in that sense that your personal presence really improved things and that was very reinforcing to me especially during those early days and covid reawakened that really for the most part i think the period you know before covid we were thinking about various things like, you know, how do we improve metrics and operations and how do we, what kind of services are delivering? And then during COVID we realized that we're the best specialty to deal with the unknowns, the chaos, the variables on a literally day-to-day, sometimes hour-to-hour basis. So, it
0: all got reinforced, you know, during this, this latest pandemic. Okay. Thanks so much for sharing that. And then I understand you didn't stop there at emergency medicine. You then completed a fellowship in toxicology as well. Tell us a little more about that. Well,
1: my mother and my father were both chemists, so I got very interested in pharmacology in medical school. And I had no idea about toxicology until I did my rotation at NYU. And I'll tell you a story. When I was a resident at Jacoby, the program director said, hey, this guy, Louis Goldfrank, is going to give us a lecture but we need one of you guys to go pick him up in the morning because he has to bring a whole bunch of plants and he doesn't drive. He takes the train down into Manhattan. So I said, "Oh, I'll, I'll go do that." He doesn't live very far from where I am. I drove there about seven in the morning, and Dr. Goldfrank, who's tall, lean, and uh, sort of like an Abraham Lincoln imposing figure, came walking out of his house and he said, "Hold these," and he had giant masses of plants, and threw them in the back of the car. And you know, we had a nice little chat on the way there, and. That one hour lecture where he literally picked up one plant after the other, talked about the genus, the species, the toxin, the mechanism of action, to me was just so amazing. It was just an amazing eye-opening experience to see someone who had such a intricate knowledge of an area of medicine that nobody really had talked about. So I became more and more fascinated with it and and when I did my rotation at NYU as a uh, resident, I was just, I had to do a tox fellowship. I came home, my, my wife and I had a few children at that time. And when I came home and told her that I was going to add a toxicology fellowship to the long list of training that I, she was like, "Groan, grown, okay, we'll do that too. So it was shortly after that that I sat down with Dr. Goldfrank. The department at Bellevue was just starting then. they just had begun the residency. So he was interested in having faculty and he and I worked out a situation where I would be a part-time faculty and a part-time fellow. So the my two-year talks, fellowship was the best three years of my life.
0: <laughs> and uh, I learned a lot, and
1: it's still rewarding to, to go back there.
0: Okay. All right. Thank you for sharing that. I also wanted to touch a little bit more on your prior experiences in the military. You touched on the fact that you were, you know, been with the Navy. And I want to touch a little more about, how those experiences have helped shape your contribute to your leadership skills now as a department chair. What are some of the tangibles or the intangibles that you learned while in the survey, to that you can now apply to your role as a department leader?
1: I do think that there was concrete lessons, and then there was like very small, continuous lessons in leadership when, when you are in the service in the healthcare field. Especially, you learn about how to conduct yourself, how to be an example to others. And you also learn how to get people to focus on purpose and really absorb the concept of teamwork and working together. And those lessons really, really helped many, many times in my career as chair. I've had almost seemingly endless lists of crises to deal with. Those lessons of Keeping people focused on purpose, uniting them around that, giving them their actions meaning, and creating teams of people to solve problems, I think, were some military things that I I learned. I was mostly in aviation for the first part of my military career, and that in particular gave me a very strong sense of mental discipline and preparation, going through flight school, you know. You can't learn on the fly. You really have to prepare and over-prepare and then rehearse until things are really super smooth. Then you can deal with chaos. So those were the lessons that I learned, I think, early on. Later, I was active duty for quite a while, and then reserves for what totaled to be about 20-some years, 21 or two years. I got recalled to active duty in 2004. I didn't get sent overseas. I was sent to Camp Pendleton Naval Hospital. I was the program director at the time. So I flew out there and uh, I sat down and said, Look, I'm trying to run this residency and I'm not sure what I'm going to do while I'm on active duty. Well, it worked out an arrangement where I, for a year I was a nocturnist. I would do all my shifts in three weeks and then fly back, take liberty and fly back and run the residency at Drexel. You know, that kind of problem solving, you know, there's more ways to get from point A to point B than you think, I think, have always reinforced a somewhat optimistic outlook that I have on a lot of things, maybe too optimistic at times. Those experiences really shape.
0: Okay. All right. And you've also touched a little bit more about the teamwork aspect of leadership. And obviously, as emergency physicians, we require a team. We can't do this just by ourselves. But a lot of our nature is to be problem solvers. We want to solve a problem. patient has a problem. We're going to try to make an impact and solve it. But obviously, as a department chair, you can't do all the things yourself. You have to have a team. So how do you deal with the delegation part of this. You touched on this a little bit already, but I was wondering if you could expand a little more, more about the delegation and how do you delegate tasks as opposed to like keeping some tasks for yourself? I know that's a hard balance. How do you, how do you find that balance? I think having a, a
1: really a flat landscape when it comes to leading physicians is very important. Leading other groups is somewhat different. Other groups expect a little bit more clarity and direction. Physicians, on the other hand, I always joke that most people know that they can do the chair job if they wanted to. They just don't feel like it. (laughs) So you have to remember that the team you're leading feels that they are as qualified as you are to be a leader. That seems to work against you until you tap into it. And that's one of the things I try to do. I often will socialize the problems that we are facing to small groups, big groups, informal groups, around the coffee machine, as well as informal meetings, and really get the pulse of what everybody's thinking. And that kind of feedback is very, very helpful in, the, in not only recruiting people to do those jobs, as opposed to saying, oh, "Well, I'm gonna delegate it to this person. He or she is really good at that. You actually cultivate the notion that here's our problems. Tell me how you think we should solve them. What are your ideas? And then as you get better and better at listening into the organization, the next set of leaders emerge. And so I generally like to work in that way, which seems to be a little bit behind the stage, if you will, but I tend not to try to formalize a lot of
0: things. Okay. That's, that's yeah, that's very helpful to kind of have that frame of mind in terms of how you go about accomplishing that. That also brings me to my next topic of discussion as well. You've alluded to the fact that, you know, prior to your residency, you know, that you were involved with aviation as a flight surgeon and that since then I understand that you're also the chief medical officer at NASTAR. I that correctly. Uh, So how did that opportunity present itself? You know, I understand that obviously you've been involved with a lot of these within aerospace medicine and aviation medicine, but how did that opportunity to be involved with that particular organization present itself, and what are your roles there?
1: Yeah, so I was a Navy flight surgeon, and I was assigned to the Naval Air Development Center, which had the human centrifuge, and actually became fairly expert in acceleration forces and physiologic effects of acceleration. And developed a relationship with a company called Environmental Tectonics that built the NASTAR Center over the years. And we would do various projects, international projects, helping various air forces train pilots to deal with high G forces and basically fighter aircraft. That group, the NASTAR group, developed and built a training centrifuge and Virgin Galactic came to NASTAR And sat down with us and said, you know, we have this crazy idea. We think we're going to sell tickets at $200,000 a pop and everybody can go to space. Except everybody's afraid to send people to space because of all their medical problems. People that went to space before were astronauts who were like highly screened. And so I think our experience over the years allowed us to tackle the problem of can an 80-year-old person go to space, endure the G-forces? Can someone with a baseline coronary artery disease, hypertension picture, go to space and endure the G-forces? Can someone with a pacemaker go to space and endure the G-forces? And so we undertook a a training of the original VG commercial astronauts and really found some amazing things about the durability of the human body and, and how well people adapted to that environment with a little bit of training. So that is really was the beginning of what we're starting to see now where, you know, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, all these enterprises are now sending more and more people to space because we know that window of G-forces that people will tolerate without much training and and that people can actually enjoy the experience and, and not feel ill or get ill in the process. COVID has slowed down a number of things since that time period, but it's exciting to see how commercial space is starting to really uh, blossom. You know, the number of people that are entering in SpaceX and whatnot, it's really good for the aerospace world.
0: Yeah, I mean, the innovations within, obviously, you know, the last few years, even within the last couple of years regarding SpaceX and Blue origin in terms of sending new celebrities you know, to space and all that stuff that's kind of been going on. But it's interesting to see the research, like how it goes going. Behind the scenes to make those things possible, so it's exciting to see what the future holds in regards to that. And then to just pivot to our last concluding thoughts in terms of, you know, as a department chair, what advice would you provide to residents who are getting ready to look for their first job out of residency? Uh, what advice would you have for them?
1: My advice is, is very simple. First of all, you have to deal with the realities of what you want your life to be like in terms of geography, you know, your spouse, your partner, your family. What are your responsibilities outside of your job? Do you have children or you cared for an older parent or what are your obligations? And then give yourself the latitude to not hundred percent have to be find the first perfect job right off the bat. It is is a long journey. You know, it's a long journey and you don't need to really make yourself anxious about that first job. See to it that it can meld into everything else in your life. And so, I've never made a mistake about a position when I always put it in the context of what the needs of my family were and what was important in my, in my personal life. Once you get to that point, you really want to look at the colleagues and the people you're going to interact with. Because, I mean, I might sound a little callous, but the patients are always sick. You know, they always want to be seen faster than you think can be seen. Those challenges seem to be pretty uniform. And spending a lot of time dealing with, you know, the setting or is it a suburban or an urban or whatnot may not be as important as what are the colleagues like that I'll be working with? Those are the people who are going to help me if I'm, I'm ill and can't go in. And they're the people that I'm going to help and return the favor to. And that if you find a place to work where in your personal life you feel a certain balance there and you have good and, and supporting colleagues, You'll feel rewarded. You can tell that I can tell with my residency grads when they've got it, when they've made choices like that. And I get in touch with them. They're like, oh, I love this job. And that job is a job that the next person in line was like, oh, I'll never take that job. <laughs> so it has to be a fit for you. That's the key. Don't judge the position by what other people think of it. And that should really be your mindset when you're you're looking. Find something that fits for you. When you're happy at work and and you feel like your work and your life are integrated because you've made those good choices, it'll feel not a problem at all.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much to all the listeners as well. Thank you for everything that you do. Dr. Hamilton, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate chatting with you. Of
1: course, you as well. And good luck in your career going forward. Thank you. Appreciate it. All
0: right. Take care.